This is the collect for the sixth Sunday after the Epiphany. O God, the strength of all who put their trust in Thee, mercifully accept our prayers. Because through the weakness of our mortal nature we can do no good thing without Thee, give us the help of Thy grace, that in keeping Thy commandments we may please Thee both in will and deed, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with Thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. I'd like to bring in uh, prayers, uh, colleagues from the prayer book, um, um, usually not exactly from the season we're in. And the interesting thing about this collect is we hardly ever get to it because it's so far into Epiphany. Um, so we dust it off this morning. But I think it speaks to uh, what I'm trying to get at today um, and was last week. And before we begin, I just want to read this same uh, set of verses that I read last time, and I forgot to kind of circle back around to, so that's why I'm bringing it in again today. Um, this is from um, the Gospel according to John, from chapter 4, verses 28 to 30, um, after Jesus has the encounter with the woman of Samaria. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Um, That that sentence always sticks with me. Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. As if everything, and this relates to Andrew's sermon, if you were at the 9 o'clock, if you go to the 11, and and dang it, I was going to preach on it at 5, but I think I will again (laughs) anyway, um, because, you know, I'll say similar things, but in my own sort of personality, but um, that everything else that she's basically heard in her life is a lie, Um, and here was finally a man who who told her the truth um, about herself and about the way that the world works, Um, and with respect to commencement speeches, um, you know, last time we talked a lot about is, um, well, I mean, not all of you were here. When I say commencement speeches, like, what comes to your mind? Graduation. Sorry? Graduation. Graduation. Or sentimentally or emotionally, like, what comes to mind, though, with uh, commencement speeches? You can do anything. Go get them. Yeah. Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. Oh, the places you will go. I'm writing an article right now, commencement speeches, and I'm contemplating calling it, oh, the places you won't go. <laughs> Sorry. Skate with your heart. Skate with your heart? Yeah, that was the charge in the skating movie. Oh, really? Skate with your heart. Okay. <laughs> or your feet, you know what I mean? <laughs> um, and maybe you've had to endure commencement speeches, either when you were graduating or... Uh, one of your children or someone close to you, you know, and how many from, from those that you've at least been present for that that you remember and thought, gosh, that was great, you know? I mean, I don't, all the ones that I've seen that I think are great, I've watched on YouTube because I wasn't there. Um, and the thing, I, the, the sort of hyperbolic statistic I gave last time is 99 point something percent of commencement speeches pretty much are lousy. Uh, because they are, um, they don't resonate in the way that the very rare ones do, uh, where someone might say, "Come see a man who told me everything I ever did." You know that uh, at a heart level, so for some reason, it connected. Um, and the sort of theological framework that I'm using today and last week is um, 
a distinction that Martin Luther made and that Gerhard Ferdi uh, exposits in this book is uh, theologians of glory on the one hand, which is most commencement spe speakers, and theologians of the cross on the other, which are the very rare ones. And I bring in secular examples. And, uh, however, um, as we saw last week with Oprah Winfrey, who I'm calling a theologian of glory, um, sorry to offend you if you think that she's great. I think that a lot of what she says is not great, um, unfortunately. She's kind of a secular Joel Osteen, um, who I don't respect either um, for the reasons of the, the sort of message that he espouses, I think is uh, problematic and burdensome and not good news at all. And frankly, not often biblical. But anyway, these are secular examples of what a theologian of glory and a theologian of the cross might look like. Um, and so what we'll read here talks about Christianity, but you could apply these principles to what you witness in commencement addresses because they're basically almost like, they, they rhetorically, they look like secular sermons, don't they? I mean, you almost feel like you're at a, a UU church, you know, uh, sort of gathering of, of humanists or something. But just rhetorically, it's, it's quite similar. Um, and so I bring in, I brought in last time some photocopies of pages from this book uh, on being a theologian of the cross. So I thought I'd bring something else in this week. If maybe last week was your first exposure, uh, this is um, some definitions from a ministry that I'm a part of called Mockingbird that a lot of you are probably familiar with. And they have a great glossary on their website of um, it's like a very, very brief uh, systematic theology, basically. Um, the, 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 the glossary uh, entries for theology of glory and theology of the cross um, earth the sort of definition a little bit better than Faraday does. But, I mean, what he does is great, too. I mean, he's the in the background to what's being said here. So before we watch again another clip from Oprah, I want to read to you. Or would somebody be willing just to read this entry on a theology of glory, so we don't hear my voice the whole time. Sure, I'll read. It. Thanks, Brett. This, this first yeah, just the, the 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 rest of page okay. one, all that's under theology of glory. A helpful way of understanding being a theologian of the cross is in contrast to what Luther calls being a theologian of glory. Theologies of glory are approaches to Christianity and to life that try in various ways to minimize difficult and painful things or else to defeat and move past them, rather than looking them square in the face and accepting them. In particular, they acknowledge the cross, but view it primarily as a means to an end, an unpleasant but necessary step on the way to good things in the future, especially salvation, the transformation of human potential by God, and the triumph of the kingdom of God in the world. As Luther puts it, the theologian of glory does not know God hidden in suffering. Therefore, he prefers works to suffering, glory to the cross, strength to weakness, <clears throat> wisdom to folly, and in general, good to evil. The Heidelberg Disputation, Proof of proof uh, to Thesis 21. Yeah. Remember my Roman noble. This is a test. <laughs> this is the natural default setting for human beings. A theology of the cross, by contrast, sees the cross as revealing the fundamental nature of God's involvement in the world this side of heaven. A window into understanding this is to look at the ways people talk about painful experiences. If someone has just undergone a difficult and unwanted breakup, for example, they often say things like, well, it wasn't a good relationship for me anyway, or 
But I've really learned a lot from this whole experience. This kind of thinking is rationalization. It basically tries to make something sound good, sound like a good thing that is in fact a bad thing. It is a strategy for avoiding having to look pain and grief directly in the face and for not having to acknowledge that we wish life were different but are powerless to change it. This is what a theology of glory looks like. A theology of the cross, by contrast, accepts the difficult thing rather than immediately trying to change it or transmute it. It looks directly into pain and calls a thing what it is, instead of calling evil good and good evil. It identifies God as hidden in the suffering. In the church, one hallmark of theologies of glory is unwillingness to acknowledge honestly the reality of ongoing sin and lack of visible transformation in Christians. A sign that you are operating with a theology of glory is when your faith feels like a fight against these realities instead of a resource for accepting them. Thanks, Brett. Um, so um, with that said, the two um, people that I'm bringing in today talk about, just as here, that second paragraph says a window into understanding this is to look at the ways people talk about painful experiences is an excerpt from the same uh, speech, a different excerpt from the same speech we, we watched at the beginning of last class from Oprah Winfrey giving an address to Harvard University about uh, some pain in her life and how she thinks about it. And then um, we'll talk a little bit more and then we'll watch a, a, a clip from, uh, in con by contrast, um, another person, uh, Conan O'Brien, talking about a painful experience in his life. Okay, and and this is the thing I'm noticing is that failure is a big topic in commencement speeches, and so they're both talking about um, failure. Um, so if you if you're invited to give a commencement address, there you go. There's a given topic right there. Is talk about failure in your life. Everybody else seems to. Um, I'm gonna have to skip ahead. Let's see. What's going on here? Foreshadowing of failure. Yeah. <coughs> well. Sorry about this. I tested it earlier and it worked. So weird. Well, golly. You know, the one option um, is then not putting it on the screen. Sorry about this. Yeah, that's what I'm trying right now. It's like my sound in my computer is not working. Um, 
Think Faust, my fellow honorans, uh, Carl, that was so beautiful. Thank you so much. And James Rothenberg, Stephanie Wilson, Harvard faculty, with a special bow to my friend, Dr. Henry Louis Gates. So I'm going to skip ahead to a bit where she talks about some suffering in her own life. I decided, as you will at some point, that it was time to recalculate, find new territory, break new ground. So I ended the show and launched OWN, the Oprah Winfrey Network. Initials just worked out for me. So one year later, after launching OWN, nearly every media outlet had proclaimed that my new venture was a flop. Not just a flop, but a big, bold flop, they call it. I can still remember the day I opened up USA Today and read the headline, Oprah not quite standing on her own. <laughs> I mean, really, USA Today, now that's the nice newspaper. It, it, it really was, this time last year, the worst period in my professional life. I was stressed and I was frustrated and quite frankly, I was, I was actually, I was embarrassed. It was right around that time that President Faust called and asked me to speak here. And I thought, you want me to speak to Harvard graduates? What, I, what can I possibly say? to Harvard graduates, some of the most successful graduates in the world in the very moment when I had stopped succeeding. So I got off the phone with President Faust and I went to the shower. It was either that or a bag of Oreos. <laughs> so I chose the shower. And I was in the shower a long time and as I was in the shower, the words of an old hymn came to me. You may not know it. It's by and by when the morning comes. And I started thinking about when the morning might come because at the time I thought I was stuck in a hole. And the words came to me, trouble, trouble don't last always from that hymn. This too shall pass. And I thought as I got out of the shower, I am gonna turn this thing around and I will be better for it. And when I do, I'm gonna go to Harvard and I'm gonna speak the truth of it. So I'm here today to tell you, I have turned that network around. And it was all because I wanted to do it by the time I got to speak to you all. So thank you so much. You don't know what motivation you were for me, thank you. I'm even prouder to share a fundamental truth that you might not have learned even as graduates of Harvard unless you studied uh, the ancient Greek hero with Professor Naj. <laughs> Professor Naj, who as we were coming in this morning said, please, Ms. Winfrey, walk decisively. <laughs> I shall walk decisively. This is what I want to share. It doesn't matter how far you might rise, at some point you are bound to stumble because if you're constantly doing what we do, raising the bar, if you're constantly pushing yourself higher, higher, the law of averages, not to mention the myth of Icarus, uh, predicts 
that you will at some point fall. And when you do, I want you to know this, remember this, there is no such thing as failure. Failure is just life trying to move us in another direction. Now, when you're down there in a hole, it looks like failure. So this past year, I had to spoon feed those words to myself. And when you're down in the hole, when that moment comes, it's really okay to feel bad for a little while. Give yourself time to mourn what you think you may have lost. But then, here's the key. Learn from every mistake. Because every experience, encounter, and particularly your mistakes, are there to teach you and force you into being more of who you are. And then figure out what is the next right move. And the key to life is to develop an internal, moral, emotional GPS that can tell you which way to go. Because now and forevermore, when you Google yourself, your search results will read, Harvard, 2013. <laughs> and in a very competitive world, that really is a calling card, because I can tell you, as one who employs a lot of people, when I see Harvard, I sit up a little straight and say, where is he or she? Bring them in. <laughs> it's an impressive calling card that can lead to even more impressive bullets in the years ahead. Lawyer, senator, CEO, scientist, physicist, winners of Nobel and Pulitzer Prizes, or late night talk show host. Conan O'Brien graduated Harvard University and became a late night talk show host. <laughs> and so we're going to watch him next. So I wonder if she was actually referencing him. Um, <laughs> um, sorry? With a Harvard education, yeah. Um, well, uh, before we watch him, would someone be willing to read the more lengthy uh, definition of theology of the cross on the second page or the first half and I'll read the second half how about that I'll read it. thank you Christianity's defining symbol is the cross where Jesus Christ is crucified at the climax of his ministry at the center of a religion of hope, joy and love is an image representing death, failure and pain and this paradox is central to the meaning of the Christian religion most broadly, a theology of the cross is simply a theology that takes the image of the cross and the event that took place upon it extremely seriously. It also means viewing Christ's death on behalf of sinners, what in theology is called the atonement, as the climax and center of his work in the world. Martin Luther took the implication of this emphasis on the cross one step further with profound effect. He understood the image of Jesus' death on the cross to reveal not just the mechanism of salvation, but a fundamental principle about life and about God. He came to believe that God always works under his opposite and that we see this in the crucifixion where God's victory was in his defeat and life came about precisely through death. As Luther puts it, it is the principle that God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores health to none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but the blind, and left life to none but the dead. He has mercy on none but the wretched and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. The theology of the cross, in this sense, contradicts the assumptions we normally have about life. 
It says that God is most reliably present, not in our strengths or our successes or the things we like best about ourselves. Rather, God is present and working in the world exactly in the place where a person is falling apart, where they are discovering the limits of their power instead of its possibilities. It also means that God is always involved with people and situations exactly as they currently are instead of as they could be or might be or used to be. The New Testament is shot through with the name, I'm sorry, with the theme of theology of the cross. In, in addition to the crucifixion itself, we see it in Jesus' preference for sinners, outcasts, and hypocrites, in his humble and unexpected origins, and in his teaching that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It is also present particularly in St. Paul's reflections on wisdom and foolishness and the message of Christ crucified in 1 Corinthians 1 and his insight that God's power is made perfect in weakness. Gerhard Ford has pointed out that Luther prefers to speak not of theology of the cross but of people being theologians of the cross. His point is that when we make a principle out of the cross, it can become a new way of trying to have control over God in our lives. And this illusion of control is actually the opposite of the theology of the cross. Another way of putting this is that, a that it is a theological truth that is truly understood only through life. Thanks, Sandy. Um, so, um, Conan O'Brien, 2011, uh, giving his commencement address to Dartmouth University. Eleven years prior, he actually was a commencement speaker at Harvard University. And in this speech, you see, you'll hear him take back some of what he said at Harvard, because between those 11 years, what happened was he was given the holy grail of late night television. Do you remember this? The late show when Jay Leno basically passed the torch and then reneged and played uh, Indian giving and took it back. Um, and publicly, uh, Conan O'Brien uh, was humiliated. Um, and um, about 18 months later, he gives this commencement uh, speech, and therefore, that's some of the references um, that he's going to make that you'll hear. And just a forewarning, I can't remember it's in um, any of this excerpt, but he has uh, some salty language. Um, it's not terrible, but um, if that offends you, I apologize. <laughs> um, and again, i got to skip forward, and let's pray that the sound works. I'm skipping over 15 minutes and 22 seconds of absolute absurdity, which is genius. I mean, I just, I wish I were a stand-up comedian, frankly. If I weren't a priest, it'd be something I'd consider if I had natural gifting toward it. But as a preacher, I've thought a lot about, you know, if I preached like a 12-minute sermon, like really what would be most powerful is if I just dropped about 10 minutes of absurdity and then two minutes of precise theology, because then people would actually listen to the sort of well-placed shot. And that's exactly what he's doing here. It's exactly what Stephen Colbert did and the one we la watched last week. Remember, I had to skip over about 10, 12 minutes to get the last four minutes. It's the same thing here. The first 15 minutes is, is great. I mean, it's worth watching on its own. We just don't have the time. So I commend it to you. And this is where he finally uh, sort of gives the real speech. in the middle of the K's. And I have to tell you this, you will spend more money framing your child's diploma than they will earn in the next six months. It's tough out there, so be patient. The only people hiring right now are Panera Bread and Mexican drug cartels. 
Yes, you parents must be patient because it is indeed a grim job market out there. One of the reasons it's so tough finding work is that aging baby boomers refuse to leave their jobs. Trust me on this. <laughs> Even when they promise you for five years they're going to leave and say it on television. I mean, you can go on YouTube right now and watch the guy do it. There is no guarantee they won't come back. Of course, I'm speaking generally. But enough, this is not a time for grim prognostications or negativity, no. I came here today because, believe it or not, I actually do have something real to tell you. Eleven years ago, I gave an address to a graduating class at Harvard. I have not spoken at a graduation since because I thought I had nothing left to say. But then, 2010 came. And now I'm here 3,000 miles from my home because I learned a hard but profound lesson last year and I have to share it with you. In 2000, I told graduates, don't be afraid to fail. Well, now I'm here to tell you that though you should not fear failure, you should do your very best to avoid it. <laughs> Nietzsche famously said, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. What he failed to stress is that it almost kills you. <laughs> Disappointment stings, and for driven, successful people like yourselves, it is disorienting. What Nietzsche should have said is, whatever doesn't kill you makes you watch a lot of Cartoon Network and drink mid-price Chardonnay at 11 in the morning. <laughs> now, by definition, commencement speakers at an Ivy League college are considered successful. But a little over a year ago, I experienced a profound and very public disappointment. I did not get what I wanted, and I left a system that had nurtured and helped define me for the better part of 17 years. I went from being in the center of the grid to not only off the grid, but underneath the coffee table that the grid sits on, lost in the shag carpeting that is underneath the coffee table supporting the grid. It was the making of a career disaster and a terrible analogy. <laughs> but then something spectacular happened. Fog bound with no compass and adrift, I started trying things. I grew a strange cinnamon beard. I dove into the world of social media. I started tweeting my comedy. I threw together a national tour. I played the guitar. I did stand-up, wore a skin-tight blue leather suit, recorded an album, made a documentary, and frightened my friends and family. Ultimately, I abandoned all preconceived perceptions of my career path and stature and took a job on basic cable with a network most famous for showing reruns, along with sitcoms created by a tall black man who dresses like an old black woman. I did a lot of silly, unconventional, spontaneous, and seemingly irrational things. And guess what? With the exception of the blue leather suit, it was the most satisfying and fascinating year of my professional life. To this day, I still don't understand exactly what happened, but I have never had more fun, been more challenged, and this is important, had more conviction about what I was doing. How could this be true? Well, it's simple. There are few things more liberating in this life than having your worst fear realized. I went to college with many people who prided themselves on knowing exactly who they were and exactly where they were going. At Harvard, five different guys in my class told me they would one day be president of the United States. 
Four of them were later killed in motel shootouts. The other ones briefly hosted Blue's Clues before dying senselessly in yet another motel shootout. Your path at 22 will not necessarily be your path at 32 or 42. One's dream is constantly evolving, rising and falling, changing course. This happens in every job, but because I have worked in comedy for 25 years, I can probably speak best about my own profession. Way back in the 1940s, there was a very, very funny man named Jack Benny. He was a giant star, easily one of the greatest comedians of his generation. And a much younger man named Johnny Carson wanted very much to be Jack Benny. In some, way he's, in some ways he was, but in many ways he wasn't. He emulated Jack Benny, but his own quirks and mannerisms, along with the changing medium, pulled him in a different direction. And yet, his failure to completely become his hero made him the funniest person of his generation. David Letterman wanted to be Johnny Carson, and was not. And as a result, my generation of comedians wanted to be David Letterman. And none of us are. My peers and I have all missed that mark in a thousand different ways. But the point is this, it is our failure to become our perceived ideal that ultimately defines us and makes us unique. It's not easy, but if you accept your misfortune and handle it right, your perceived failure can become a catalyst for profound reinvention. So, at the age of 47, So at the age of 47, after 25 years of obsessively pursuing my dream, that dream changed. For decades in show business, the ultimate goal of every comedian was to host The Tonight Show. It was the holy grail. And like many people, I thought that achieving that goal would define me as successful. But that is not true. No specific job or career goal defines me, and it should not define you. In 2000, in 2000, I told graduates to not be afraid to fail, and I still believe that. But today, I tell you that whether you fear it or not, disappointment will come. The beauty is that through disappointment, you can gain clarity, and with clarity comes conviction and true originality. Many of you here today are getting your diploma at this Ivy League school because you have committed yourself to a dream and worked hard to achieve it. And there is no greater cliche in a commencement address than follow your dream. Well, I'm here to tell you that whatever you think your dream is now, it will probably change, and that's okay. Four years ago, many of you had a specific vision of what your college experience was gonna be and who you were gonna become. And I bet today most of you would admit that your time here was very different from what you imagined. Your roommates changed, your major changed. For some of you, your sexual orientation changed. <laughs> I bet some of you have changed your sexual orientation since I began this speech. I know I have. But through the good, and especially the bad, the person you are now is someone you could never have conjured in the fall of 2007. I've told you many things today, most of it foolish, but some of it true. I'd like to end my address by breaking a taboo and quoting myself from 17 months ago. At the end of my final program with NBC, just before signing off, I said, work hard, be kind, and amazing things will happen. Today, receiving this honor and speaking to the Dartmouth class of 2011 from behind a tree trunk, I have never believed that more.
Thank you very much and congratulations. Okay. I open the floor to discussion, thoughts, comments, reactions, questions. Michael? <laughs> you looked like you wanted to say something. Well, I was just thinking about Oprah Winfrey. The only reason I've ever heard of the own network, or just, just own, because networks are in there, is because she did that series with Lindsay Lohan, where she I don't know about a this. documentary and kind of followed her around. And I think she was trying to, I think she was trying to film her sort of comeback. And Oprah would come in at the end of the episode and talk to Lindsay and try to, you know, guide her through this process. And of course, I mean, she, she just wasn't responding to that at that point in time. And I think Oprah ended up canceling the show because it was basically too depressing that, you know, she would have all these opportunities and then she would disappear and not do what she was supposed to be doing and all that. And it was sort of like, when she was talking about her network, I mean, that was the only show that actually, I think, made any sort of Splash, at least that I can recall. Yeah. Maybe others watch it regularly. But um, it was just—it's funny that she—that that one show was actually successful, but she couldn't Oprah <coughs> couldn't deal with it being on her network because it was so tragic and yeah. to, to watch this person kind of struggle through life. And wow. Canceling her and firing her. But I don't know what the point of that was. It just. Well, if Oprah was giving her any amount of advice that was similar to this, I'm sure that Lindsay was like, shove it, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, right. it was basically like at the end of the episode, she was, you need to get it together. Right. Yeah. You can't be struggling with your addictions. Yeah. Thanks. Any other thoughts? I have a question. Yeah. Um, on the the last paragraph of the second thing that was read. On the theology of the cross. Mm -hmm. The second sentence <clears throat> of that last paragraph, it says, his point is that when we make a principle out of the cross, it can become a new way of trying to have control over God and our lives. And this illusion of control is actually the opposite of the theology of the cross. I mean, I think I get it, but I was just wondering if you could expand on the making the principle out of the cross. Does anybody have any thoughts on that? Otherwise, I'd give a stab at it. Um... Yeah, I, it's interesting that Faraday was <clears throat> conscious to talk not of theologies, even though the heading says the theology of the cross, but theologians of the cross. Um, I guess if you just if you start to abstract it too much, um, you actually start to manipulate it and turn it into a theology of of glory, um, using it as um, maybe sort of, and I've seen this happen even with my own friends, and I've done it, you know, where you just get so kind of, uh, you get through, often what happens, especially with young people, if they have theological kind of conversions, they go through kind of like a, a I don't know what else to call it, like a rage phase where you abstract the thing that you think is the good news and you actually um, become alienating to other people. And so therefore it's like no longer a theology of the cross, which is the thing that was meant to be a message of, of hope, uh, good news. I don't know if that, um, that's my stab at what I think might be said here. Anybody else have any thoughts on that? Yeah. I'm not yeah. Sure in, my, in my own life, 
gospel of grace in a way to not be graceful towards other right. people. Right. Yeah. Like, oh, I, you don't believe what I believe, therefore I don't have to like you or love you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's all inherent to human nature. Um, but um, <clears throat> and then I like what they say too here about um, theologians of glory and theologians of the cross, not necessarily. And I don't know where the line is exactly, but I remember when we were reading it earlier, um, almost as a as a principle of of life. Um, oh, that's at the beginning of the theology of glory, the second sentence. Um, the first paragraph, theologies of glory are approaches to Christianity and to life that try in various ways to minimize difficult and painful things. Um, and so that's why I feel uh, comfortable bringing in Oprah Winfrey and, and, and Conan O'Brien and saying, well, one seems for the most part to be a theologian of glory and the other for the most part seems to be a theologian of the cross even with the lack of Christian language, except for the one that did bring in Christian language was the one that I think is closer to a theologian of glory. Do you remember she quoted um, the gospel hymn and then turns that into something that minimizes the effects of failure? Um, you know, that's the cliche that I'm noticing and watching so many of these commencement addresses more than any one person ought to, but uh, <laughs> uh, that... Failure seems to be a stepping stone. Um, you know, it's um, um, that's the wisdom when you get someone with a little more years under their belt before a bunch of 22-year-olds that they bring is, um, you know, look at me, I've failed, and I was able to use that to to manipulate it into a thing that's caused me to succeed. And the thing I like about Conan O'Brien is he calls a thing what it is instead, and he says. It almost killed me. <laughs> I, I hated going through it. I, and as a Christian, I can say I hate that God works through pain. I absolutely hate it. If I had my own way, that's not what I would choose. And I know that that's where he is. You know, I was talking to someone last night, um, weighing some options, and you know, he was like, "Well, these op- where were these options before? You know, in the last several years, and now a bunch all at once." And I go. You know, I hate it, but I've just seen this in my life that that seems to be the way that God works. <laughs> He's at work in all these options that are causing so much, so much confusion, actually. Um, yeah, so anyway, uh, any final thoughts? We have about two minutes left. Well, you talk about in here one of your classes, but also the Kevin Twitt. Yeah. When he talks about the hymn about seeing the rainbow. Yeah. About it's not just... Hold your head up. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah. It's more about that God's right there with you and holding on to that bow that's let loose on, on God. Bit. Yeah. That kind of came to my mind. Yeah, I'm trying to remember that. what he said exactly about the, the, the rainbow in terms of with respect to our own suffering, but I can imagine Kevin saying that. Um, you know, it's not a rainbow like unicorns and rainbows kind it's of rainbow, line. but he says it's actually... Um, and, and it's true if you look up the Hebrew word is the same word and um, the rainbow from the story of Noah the flood of, uh, of a, a bow and arrow a battle bow so if there's a battle bow in the sky what that means is it's cocked and aimed at himself um, and uh, it's a prefiguring of what God would do at the cross um, and so God is actually at work through uh, the suffering and not to turn the cross into an object lesson uh because we shouldn't, but 
you know, there you go. When God was saving the world, he worked through suffering, um, his own suffering. Um, and so uh, that, that's true in our own lives, too. Which, if I can say, is also a reminder of, I think, how much the theology of glory has become uh, a centering point of Christian Christian culture. And that, like, if you look at crosses, like, our daughter held up this little tiny pearlized, itty-bitty cute little cross, you know, and she held it up to me and she said, Mommy, this is where Jesus died? Like, this is a cross? And I was thinking, like, that is kind of... So profound. Like, adorable, feminized, like, very palatable jewelry to remember the the cruel suffering that Jesus endured for us. It's a great image of what a theology of glory is, is taking the thing and, and putting a sheen over it um, to make it sound better. And I'll say one last word, that uh, churches that for the most part have a theology of glory um, grow because they tell you what you want to hear and what you think is the truth. It's harder for a church with the theology of the cross to grow, yet it will over time. I mean, I, I really think that the Advent is a, a place where as a sort of shining beacon of hope. And, and we are growing because people come to us when they need the pieces of their life picked up. Um, but at the outset, people hear the message and they do say, gosh, that sounds almost nihilistic. It sounds depressing, but it isn't. Um, there is, it's, the, it's the thing that you need to hear in order to understand the hope of the message of the cross. Um, so uh, that's what I have to say. There are two copies of the book from the bookstore on being a theologian of the cross. If you'd like to learn more about um, what I've been talking about here the last two weeks, pick one of these up and take it to the bookstore and pay for it. Um, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thank you.